a particular sequence that gives you the possibility of having a lot of THC. Now, every single physical characteristic is a product of genes and environment, so nature and nurture. So if you grow your cannabis in shitty environments, it's probably not going to produce as much cannabinoids as it could produce if you grew it in a very good environment with good lights or good nutrients. This is The Dime. Dive into the cannabis and hemp industry through trends, insights, predictions, and tangents. What's up, guys? Welcome back to the episode of The Dime. I'm Brian Fields. With me, as always, is Kellen Finney. And this week, we've got a very special guest, Dr. Daniela Vergara, founder of Agricultural Genomics Foundation. Dr. Daniela, how are you doing? Good. How are you? Excited to talk to you. Kellen, how are you doing? I'm doing really good. Really excited Excited to talk to Daniela, especially because it's a science-based episode, finally. so It certainly um, is. I think it's really important, though, we get to exactly where Dr. Daniela's current location is so that we can make that little East Coast, West Coast battle. So, Dr. Daniela, your location, please. Bloomfield, New York. I think we were talking, though, before the show, and she might have some loyalties on the West Coast, though. <laughs> she, she certainly might have some loyalties and experience on the West Coast, but her current location would put her on the West Coast team. So that is another one for us. So, Dr. Oh, Daniel, you're kind of... <laughs> yeah, I, I'm making up the rules as we go. For gonna lose <laughs> I like it. I like it. You know, so, uh, Dr. Danielle, if our listeners aren't familiar about you, can you give a little background about yourself? I am Colombian originally, and I moved to the U.S. to do a PhD in evolutionary biology. I then met who's now my husband and decided to stay. And we moved to Colorado. I did a postdoc there at the University of Colorado in Boulder. I still have a lecturer and researcher appointment there. And that's where I started in cannabis. It was by chance I was going to study sunflowers. But, you know, it was a Friday night with my husband and his friend. And then it turned into cannabis that Friday night. From then, I started doing genomics and bioinformatics, which was the lab that I was in at Nolan Kane's lab at CU Boulder. And he and I still have a strong collaborative environment and a grant that's ongoing with one of his uh, graduate students. And then uh, on late 2021, I moved to New York State. Okay, before that, I worked for the private industry. I was funded by Steep Hill Labs. So I worked for Steep Hill Labs for about two years while doing research at CU Boulder. And then the R&D team from Steep Hill got purchased by Front Range Biosciences. So I moved to Front Range Biosciences and continued doing research. And then there were some financial issues with Front Range and I had to find a job. I looked for a job, found this one at Cornell Cooperative Extension and moved for three days between Colorado and now where I am in Bloomfield, New York. I love it. So for our listeners that maybe are unfamiliar about genomics, can you give them the, the basic definition of what that means and how it work, fits into cannabis? Absolutely. So genomics is the study of entire genomes, right? So a genome is all of the collection of DNA of genetic material of an organism. So all of the, you know, A, T, G, Cs, you know, ninth grade, like all of your DNA, all of the collection. So one genome, I have a genome of myself, right? I have my genome right? Brian and Kilian, they have their own genomes. If we compare the three genomes, we're comparing our three genomes, there are going to be similarities and differences. And then what I did was that I looked at genomes in cannabis. So hemp type, marijuana type, and I look at differences and similarities. Steve Hill was very interested. I come, my PhD was on sex, 
why is there sex? Why do organisms reproduce sexually instead of cloning themselves? Like that was, and this was a question that Darwin himself asked, like why would organisms not clone themselves? And so my thesis was on that. So when I jumped into cannabis, I was coming with that mindset and I was interested like, oh, it has monoecious, so so what people call Hermes. So it has monoecious individuals and males and females. And that was what I was interested in. But, you know, I started being paid by the industry and Steve Hill was like, cannabinoid genes. So I started doing cannabinoid genes, which I absolutely love. Like at the beginning, it was like, oh, I don't want to. But then I was, this is so fascinating and I absolutely love them. So I really know a lot about cannabinoid genes. And that's what I did for, uh, for I have several papers on cannabinoid genes. That's so when we say cannabinoid genes, are you referring to the sequence and the DNA that codes for like the enzymes that make these cannabinoids? Is that what you're looking at? Absolutely. That's a great way to say it. Yeah. The enzymes that make THCA or CBDA or CBCA. Yes. Why would that be valuable to like a steep hill? Just kind of like filling in the puzzle pieces. You know what I mean? Is it help with economics for them? Well, and at the end of the day, if you want to, for example, silence the gene for hemp, you don't want hemp to produce any cannabinoids. You need to have the sequence to know where do I silence it or how do I silence it? Or if you want to enhance it, you need the sequence. So because cannabinoids are the most valuable thing from marijuana, right, both medically or recreationally, that was the thing. And we didn't know much about the cannabinoids at the time. Now we know much more. But that's how I started in my cannabis stuff was mostly cannabinoids. So give us give us a breakdown on one of the things that surprised you when you started getting interested in it. So in cannabis in general or on cannabis? Yeah. In cannabis in general. So in cannabis in general. Okay, so first, my dad is a university professor. I grew up in a university. I've never left a university. I come from academia. My uncle is a PhD. My cousin is a PhD. Like that's what my family did. You know, like I didn't know that you could do other things in life until I got into the cannabis industry where I met, for example, for the first time a marketer or, you know, there were uh, architects or right. And, uh, and, and that was like, oh, this is an industry. This is like my mindset completely shifted. And I don't know if you guys have paths with Maureen McNamara from Cannabis Trainers in, in Colorado. She taught me how to talk to people. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I was coming from academia and I was used to talking to academics. Yeah. And I didn't know. And besides, English is my second language. So I didn't know that much of the jargon from academia is jargon from academia. Like people do not really use those terms. So it was Maureen that, that taught me like, okay, now you need to talk to the rest of the world. And, <laughs> and so she, she taught me how to, how to do that. And it opened my, my world basically. Like, you know, like besides academia, there's other things in life. I, I didn't really understand that until working in the cannabis industry. So are, are breeders switching slightly switching gates? Are breeders, when they crossbreeding the, the different strains, are there an understanding of what they're doing? Is it guest has revised? Take us through the process now and what you think should be actually be happening. Okay, yeah, that's a great question because at the end of the day, evolutionary biology is the theory behind breeding, right? You're selecting for plants whose phenotypes you like, whether it's THC or whether it's height or whether it's lemon smell. So when you are breeding for a plant, you're choosing individuals that have physical characteristics, so phenotypes that you desire. And those phenotypes, so those physical characteristics, 
come usually in parallel with some sort of genomic trait, right? Like if there's some characteristics that are very, very heritable. So height in humans is the perfect example. If your parents are tall, it's likely that you're going to be tall. So if you select the tallest individuals, it's very likely that you're going to have tall offspring, right? In cannabis, ideally, we would be able to do that and we would be able to associate physical characteristics with particular genomic locations. And we know, for example, for THC, that there's a particular gene, a particular sequence that gives you the possibility of having a lot of THC. Now, every single physical characteristic is a product of genes and environment, so nature and nurture. So if you grow your cannabis in shitty environments, it's probably not going to produce as much cannabinoids as it could produce if you grew it in a very good environment with good lights or good nutrients. So the idea of studying the genome is, at the end of the day, being able to predict what's going to happen. Is your plant going to be a female or a male? If it's going to be ha- have high THC or not? For hemp, for example, if it's going to produce big size seeds or uh, the fiber, is it going to be tall or all of those things, right? So are, are breeders now, when they make looking into making those decisions, are they thinking about that? And then are they making tests in order to try to correlate that? Or is it kind of a, a guest test from advisor where they, they, they take two look at two different strains and they say, these two we think are the strongest and then we cross-free those. Do you have any idea on how that goes today typically and what you think people can do in order to do a more effective job? So there are some traits. You know whether there are some sex tests, for example, that you can know whether your plant is going to be a male. So yes, if you're breeding and you want to know whether that plant is going to be a male, you can do a sex test. doesn't tell you if it's going to be a monoecious, right? If it's going to be a hermaphrodite or if, if you stress it out, if it's going to produce pollen. But yeah, for males, you have, there is a possibility of doing it. For THC also, flowering times, there's also, so yes, I don't think that breeders for marijuana in particular have, there are some that use these, there's some companies in West usually that are using some of these techniques, but breeders in general, like the breeder that breeds in still in closets and basements, I, I don't think that they're using any of these techniques. How useful do you think it is to for breeders to actually get the genomics of, say, two different strains and then try to piece together what they think the offspring is going to have from a characteristic standpoint? How close are we to like being able to do something like that. Does, is that? does that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. And I think that for particular traits, we, we can, right? For, yeah, again, for cannabinoids, for um, sex, we can predict or we can tell you how the plant is going to be when it's very tiny, when it's small. There's other traits that we have no clue. Like, I, I don't think that we know much about, like terpenes are a big kind of worms. But I don't know if it, if it's going to be good for a breeder that is breeding low scale in their basement. I don't know whether that's a good idea because if you look at other crops, like if you look at corn, for example, you have big companies that are breeding companies that are the ones that do that. And then the farmer already buys the seeds from these companies. And to be honest, breeding at a large scale is not an easy endeavor. Like you need highly qualified personnel. And especially if you're doing marker-assisted selection, which is what I'm talking about, where you look at the DNA in order to select for those individuals that whose DNAs you like because they're related to a trait that you like, right? 
that is not easy. That is not an easy bioinformatic task, especially if you're talking about hundreds of thousands of plants. I think that people need to understand genomics and understand because I think that that makes it easy for them to understand what the companies are doing, especially if the companies may not have your best interest as a farmer. That allows you to understand more of what the company is doing. How is the company doing it? When is the company doing it? Why is the company doing it, right? And that allows you to make more educated decisions. But I don't know if you necessarily need to be the breeder yourself. You mentioned marker-assisted selection, right? And so there's kind of two different buckets as as it stands in terms of trying to get a plant to have a specific characteristics, right? So marker selected is one. What is the other one? Is it actually going into manipulating the genome itself to create that characteristic? Like genetic engineering, for example, providing that that gene to the plant, is that kind of technology that's possible within the breeding process? Yes, that is a technology that is possible within the breeding process. It's not easy again. And then you need a molecular biologist that actually can take the gene <laughs> and can take and put it there, right? And, and do that stuff. It's not easy. It's possible. It's been done, right? Like that is GMO, right? Like that is yeah. a modified organism. It depends on where you draw the line of what is a GMO and what is not a GMO, because there are things that do not necessarily occur in nature, right? Like seedless watermelon, they were bred for. I don't think that they were genetically engineered, but in nature alone, if we were not to touch nature at all, that wouldn't have happened. Seedless watermelons, right? Or chihuahuas, right? Like that is a lot of breeding that went into the chihuahua. And if you see all of the dogs, there is a cost for the amount of inbreeding. Like when you think about a chihuahua, you don't picture a German shepherd. You picture Ashiwawa and you know that they're very different. They're used for different things. And there's a lot of inbreeding that went into that, you know, like father mating, daughter mating, father mating, brother, right? Like there's a lot of inbreeding and that comes with consequences. All of those nasty diseases like cancer or these ulcers that these dogs have due to inbreeding, that comes with consequences. And it also comes with consequences in plants. And now with genetic engineer, I mean, I guess that it depends on your personal susceptibility, whether you go to the store and eat strawberries that are polyploid, right? That are these huge strawberries that look like an orange. That is also developed in the lab. I mean, I am a big GMO proponent. Um, I give talks about GMOs. I have my issues with GMOs, yes. Where do you see the line? Where do I see the line? You said it depends on where you see the line with GMOs and in cannabis. So where do you see the line with is what you think is GMO and what is non-GMO for what is currently happening? So in my opinion, and this is my definition of GMOs, if you, ha- if you need a lab in order to do it, that is GMO. If I can do it on my closet or on my, my basement, that, that is not. So if you're just naturally breeding and doing kind of like the Mendel process, right, with his beans, for those of you who don't know, it's a great thing to go look up, Nelson Mandel. But if you're doing that, you want, I wouldn't count that as GMO either because, I mean, plants do, will do that on their own, right, naturally. We just help facilitate it and actively put 
like the two tall people together, hoping they fall in love, I guess you could say, right? (laughs) So, okay, so first, I think, okay, first, like, Gregor Mendel had a lot of time. He was a monk. Yeah. I'm assuming that monks have a lot of time, hopefully. (laughs) (laughs) I don't really know much about the life of a monk, except for him. That was just crossing peas, you know, like. (laughs) uh, um, (laughs) Exactly. Uh, but again, even if you are breeding, like all of these breeds of dogs have been the work of multiple generations that probably didn't happen out of the blue. Like there were dedicated Mendels that were breeding for these dogs. Same for, you know, all of the species or, or Brassica, I think it's a greatest example. Brassica, the wild mustard. Is the same is the same species for for um, kale, cauliflower, broccoli, Brussels sprouts is the same species. So you selected yes, yeah, exactly. That phase is the correct phase. What <laughs> exactly? So kale you selected for the flowers, Brussels sprouts for the lateral buds, cauliflower for the flower, right? And it's the same species. It didn't happen willy nilly out in the wild. Like it was work that that went into that. Those things, I could maybe, if I dedicate my entire life, I could do it in my shower, right? I don't need a lab, like I don't need to introduce a gene, right? So in my opinion, those are not GMOs. What is a GMO? A GMO is when you you need a lab. You need a lab in order to do that, whether it's polyploid because you added chemicals, cochicine, and then, right, or, or whatever it is, but you need a lab. So are we that talking synthetic cannabinoids? Is this where we're kind of, we're moving towards? Is this what we're talking about? I wasn't going there, but if you want to go there, let's Well, I, I'm just curious, right? Like I'm trying to like a- attach the line because we talk about synthetic cannabinoids and then what is naturally occurring in the plant. So I'm curious to know like, where is this line? Because in cannabis, it always feels like everything is very gray and it turns out like everything kind of just ends up in there. So is this, are we in synthetic cannabinoids or are we talking about something different? Can you classify a synthetic cannabinoid as a cannabinoid that's manufactured from a genetically modified organism? No, I think that those are more like chemically producing the lab, right? But if if I were to produce GMO cannabis, what would I do? I think I would make this resistant plants. I think I would make um, maybe plants that produce a bunch, like they yield a bunch, like what, 35% THC? 75 you know like something like <laughs> the moon. Uh, yeah like ultra lemonine 75 percent yeah you know like the huge trichomes like i would just do you know like a a huge trichome or, or multiple i would actually make trichomes grow in the leaves and in the stems and those are not regulated they only regulate the bud so why that, why has anyone do. done that because it's the plant Exactly. And in order for you to do that, you need a lab. And in order for you to have a lab that has these capacities, it's usually universities that have that. And in order for you to do that, you need federal legalization. You cannot take marijuana into a lab. And I mean, yeah, you can take CBD, I guess. So staying on synthetic cannabinoids, because it's it's a very hot topic, how, how do we define that and how do then we ensure that the the end customers understand what they're consuming, whether or not it is naturally occurring in a plant or or not? 
is, is synthetic cannabinoids a hot topic? Is that really? I didn't know. I mean, if you think like Delta 8 and Delta 10, right, a lot of those cannabinoids have kind of proliferated a lot of these markets. And so, I mean, it's just tough because a lot of these, a lot of the cannabinoids, so like the federal government says that, like the reason Delta 8 is legal right now mm-hmm. is because it's like a loophole around Delta 9 because the cannabis plant technically only makes Delta 9 THC. And so cannabis, the plant is illegal because it has Delta 9 THC, right? And so if they're making Delta 8 THC, it's technically legal, right? And they're saying that it's naturally occurring because it's in low levels in the plant. But I I personally have never seen a cannabis plant with Delta 8 levels in it that high at all, honestly. So that's an argument for another day. But if you're able to manipulate the genome of cannabis to manufacture this Delta-8 cannabinoid that was considered synthetic, is it a way around the, the federal laws regarding Delta-9 THC? So, okay, so I think, is that defining what is a synthetic cannabinoid, I think it's a difficult thing, right? Because yeah. it's something that you do in the lab, right? So I can take, I don't know, THC, like Delta-9 THC, and do it in the lab, or from Delta-9, then produce Delta-8, or from THC, then produce CBN, right? And then at the end of the day, the plant does produce THCA, right? Delta 9 THCA. And then when we heat it up, decarboxylation, then you have Delta 9 THC, and then it ages and oxidation, and then you have CBN, right? And then the difference between THCA, Delta 9, and Delta 8 is a bond between two carbons, and so it's it's kind of very easy to go from one place to the other. And I have analyzed data that has Delta-8 in low quantities, but it is present. But there are other cannabinoids, there are other synthetic cannabinoids, like this spice thing, right, that are very, very toxic. So there are cannabinoids that are produced therapeutically, right? So you have all of these drugs like Epidiolex or Dronabinol or Nabilone that are produced in the lab, but they are based on what the plant produced. But there's other cannabinoids like that alpha pinaca or the spice that are not produced by the plant and are much stronger, right? So Delta-9 THC is a partial agonist of the endocannabinoid system and it's partial and that's a partial agonist, right? And that is compared to our own cannabinoids that we produce, our endocannabinoids. Then you have these other synthetic cannabinoids like that. Alpha pinaca is the one that I know the most because I wrote at some point about it. It's not partial. It's entirely an agonist. So it is much stronger. And so I, I don't know, I, I think that we need to define what those things are and what is synthetic and what is not. And it is if it's synthetic plant-based or if it's full synthetic that has completely been engineered in the lab. I think that those definitions are, are important. 100%. And, and that's really why I wanted you to clarify that because it is so complex and so difficult. So for the people who are making decisions down in DC, who are unsure of some of these nuances and details, it just layers on the complication that when these rulings go down and it's like, well, it's not as black and white as that. So for example, when I was in Miami, someone offered me THCP and I had no idea what THCP was. And they said, well, it's like THCO, but better. And I was like, define better. 
and was frightened, right? Like to think that like this was something that could all of a sudden pop up and they're just like literally going down the alphabet, right? L-M-N-O-P. Like, is this really what we're doing here, guys? <laughs> like that, that's what I was fearful of. Like, how, how, how are we doing this? How are we defining this? And is there any sort of basis before like, quote unquote, better? So your thoughts. Better is just the pharmacokinetics, right? So THCP has seven carbons on the alkane tail, I think, instead of normal five, which is just delta nine THC. And so it binds better, right? And that's also what's going on with the alpha PNAC. Is that correct, Dr. Yeah. Daniela? Right? It just it sits in your CD1 receptor longer. So it causes that your high lasts longer and it's a more intense feeling because it's just sitting in that enzyme in your brain for a lot longer. But my fear, right, is that a consumer walks into a store and doesn't understand the differences between these cannabinoids and grabs a product that goes, ah, THCP, like just going to get high, right? Ask the person behind the counter that's selling the unlicensed products. And he's like, yeah, you'll get high. Has no idea. Goes home, has a terrible experience and is immediately off put by cannabis A and B, like if we could have a really bad reaction setting off you know, a negative sentiment towards the industry when ultimately, what is, what is he consuming? And this brings up a really good point from kind of this trend within breeders right now. And so I don't know if you've heard, there's a couple breeders out in California that have high like THCV strains, right? And so THCV is just one less, two less carbons, right? It's three. Three less carbons. Yeah, yeah I think, I can't remember, right? It's just, just they mess with the, the chain. So again, now we're seeing these plants be bred to make these minor cannabinoids that could have stronger interactions than what someone would be used to with cannabis. Like, what is your thoughts on on those kind of trends from a breeding perspective? I think it's awesome. Great. I I, I love that they're going for something else besides CHG. Is that cannabis is, look, I have been a cannabis consumer for a very long time, but my taste is kind of like a yes, no type of thing. You know, it's like, yes, this tastes good and no, it doesn't. And it's usually a yes. I am a great eater. You can invite me to eat anything and I'm always going to think it's delicious. So just don't eat anything I cook, you know, for your sake. So when I, I didn't believe all of these things that, you know, cannabis people said like, oh, and this one smells like blah, blah, blah. And I was like, really? Until two things happened. First, I started working for Steep Hill and they threw a bunch of data at me and I started analyzing the data and it's like, yeah, this is true. There's a bunch of different compounds that are produced in different ratios. Different strains produce different things. Strain names do not mean much. It doesn't matter. But in any case, yes, there's a bunch of different things. And then I was pregnant. And when I was pregnant, I smelled everything. And I was I was selected to be a judge for high times. And I wasn't able to do it because I was pregnant. So my husband did it. And I was able to smell all of the things that he, and, and I could tell you right then, like this smells so different from this one, right? Like this one definitely smells more strawberry-like and this one definitely smells like a skunk. So then I'm analyzing the data, like this is real, right? So right now that it's going into mainstream and people go to a liquor store and it's like, give me the highest you know, 75% ethanol. That's the one I want to drink and I want to be wasted. Same thing happens with cannabis. Like give me, you know, like the 38% THC, which at the end of the day, first, we don't think it acts the same way as alcohol. And second, there's so many other things. Like I, I do believe in this entourage effect. I think that there's a little, there's a tiny bit of evidence, but I do think that it's likely, right, that you're putting a bunch of different things in different ratios, they act in different ways, right? 
So I do think that that is true. And so why not breed for these other different things that you could, right? High CBC, um, CBDV, why not? I think that that is awesome for breeders. Like, yeah, go for it. Like the sky is the limit. Any any fears of the unknown that we haven't consumed high amounts of CBC for long periods of time and kind of we're walking down this path of unknown where there could be ultimately bad results? I know that's kind of a pretty negative feeling, but just wandering to this unknown, we're kind of adjusting these plants in order to maximize these different analytes. I'm curious to know if you have any fears of what could be waiting for us on their side. Yeah, like, you know, with great powers comes great responsibilities. Yes. (laughs) But um, I... (laughs) I love that. (laughs) I don't think there's anything worse than the opioid epidemic that we're currently having, right? Like, is there going to be something worse than that? I don't think so. Of course, this is a personal opinion, redundancy, you know, sample size of one, me here, like, and going back to the question that Kellen was asking about THCP and THCO and all of that stuff. I remember when Colorado just legalized. So this was probably 2015. And there was, I think, this New York Times article that came out. A reporter went to uh, a dispensary, got um, some edibles and got ultra high and was not able to leave her room in her bed and it was an entire story of this is awful and it's like yes it comes with education like I don't know I mean here in the U.S. it's a little different but when I was you know 14 and in Colombia everyone drinks and I was you know like the first time I drank I was younger but they tell you like if you drink a lot you're gonna get drunk and then you're not gonna remember so you have to educate your consumers and especially I think there's Two types of consumers are the most important ones, the very younger ones and the very older ones. The very younger ones because they're dumb and they want to get super high. And the very older ones because they actually go there because they are in pain. They have hip pain. They cannot sleep. They need something that helps. They need. And and then you get a person, you know, a dispensary, a butt tender that lives in Colorado and it's living the dream and it's snowboarding in the winter, you know, and I work at a dispensary. Oh, my God. Yeah. Take the one that has the most THC. And that is not the case necessarily. So you really need to have good education and tell people, okay, we, we do not know entirely the effects of CBC. We, we don't know, but try it. And if you like how you feel, come back and order the exact same thing, right? That's what I recommend. Start little by little. Don't eat the entire gummy. Eat half of the gummy. Make sure that you're not going to drive, that you're not going to use a chainsaw. Just watch a movie, right? And then if two hours later you feel okay or three hours, then eat the rest of the gummy. But start with a quarter or a half. Powerful message. (laughs) (laughs) I like. Is (laughs) cannabis just one species? Yeah, cannabis sativa is one species. Yes, with a lot of genomic and phenotypic diversity. Yes. Can you kind of expand on on how that works? I've seen you compare it to the the chimps and humans. I'm curious to know if you can give us a oh, breakdown. Yeah. Where did you see that? I can't tell you where I did my research. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it has a lot of diversity. It has as much diversity as maybe two different species, or at least with some sort of preliminary results that I did at some point, it has maybe two or three times as much genetic variation than we do which is exciting because then you can do a bunch of combinations, right? 
if it were not regulated the way it is, we could do a bunch of different combinations and and Can you give us an example. For example, I think that it would be super cool to have very, very stinky plants that are very small, flower very early, and are all purple, just for ornament, right? Very small, out of flowers, big, stinky buds, all purple. Why not? And that produce trichomes in the the stems. Why not? I can have it on content. Maybe, but you you want to be because it's stinky and it's ornaments. Yeah, you don't need to smoke it. So I like that. Yeah, so do I. Uh, I was thinking about that. So <laughs> cannabis sativa, the production manual. We got a quick glimpse into it. It's absolutely beautiful. I'd love if you could share some some insights in it and kind of what people can expect when they take a look. Yeah, the cannabis production manual. That was exciting. That was my first big endeavor at Cornell. And it was really exciting because I learned a lot. I learned that I know very little and I know just a little tiny part of the entire plant. I was able to interact with a bunch of people because I was leading the project and I needed information from a bunch of people. And so in my opinion, that manual is a 101 on if you want to start growing cannabis for any particular reason, you know, if you want to grow fiber hemp or grain, what do you need? How much money do you need? What space do you need? What equipment do you need? Uh, How do you plant it? What is the space between plants? How many plants? Uh, What to expect? How do I harvest it? When do I harvest it? Um, So this one-on-one, of course, you can go deeper and deeper and deeper. For example, the high cannabinoid part, there's so many cannabinoids and all of the biochemistry, like we didn't really explain, okay, this is THC and this is CBD and this is CBC and this is how THC goes into, right, and CBC into a CBLA and CB, right? We, we didn't explain all that, all that part and, and this carbon and this other carbon, but you can always go deeper and deeper or extractions. I'm lately fascinated by the biochemistry of extractions and resins and rosins and, you know, solvent and solvent less and why would you pay more for this one than this other one? And the but the biochemistry behind it. So that is we don't talk about it. I mean, it's still two hundred and eight pages, and we don't talk about it. So it could be you know six hundred pages if we talked about all of that stuff. But it's kind of like an overall glimpse, I think. Did you learn anything that surprised you or shocked you when you were helping put it together? Yes, I didn't know that there were so many diseases that cannabis was susceptible for. And so many insects. And I didn't know much of... I've been in touch with... In Colorado, I was very in touch with indoor grows. But here, there's more outdoor grows. And of course, going from indoors to outdoors is a completely different thing. So learning about nutrient and soil management, that was totally new to me. And and you know, and all of the fertigation that you do indoors, you really do not do that outdoors or there's other options outdoors, right? Like people here use chicken manure. So you can do that, right? So that was that was new to me. Yeah. On a scale of zero to one hundred, with a hundred being we know everything about the plant, in your opinion, where are we today with our understanding of the cannabis plant? Twenty, thirty, maybe? I mean the understanding of, of, of what? what we currently know about cannabis and how the the human body interacts with it and what its potential benefits are and what we can potentially leverage it for future opportunities, whether it's medicinal, recreational, just from an understanding standpoint, information-wise, where do you think we are today and what 
Like, how long do you think it'll take us to get to 60 or 80? I think, yeah, I think that we're about in a 30. And how long does it take us? I mean, it depends on federal legalization. But I, it, it's going to be much faster than with other species because we have tools that were not there. You know, when I started working in cannabis at CU Boulder, like I remember, yeah, it was literally a Friday night. My husband had a friend in town and they were like, hey, so why sunflowers? Why not weed? And I'm like, well, everyone knows everything about weed. And I started looking at what was out there. There was not much. And that was 2013. The advancements in 10 years have been incredible. So I do think that things are happening fast and there's a lot of biotech promise, not only in the marijuana front, but also in the hemp front, right? Like there's a lot of biotech companies that are coming out and that are breeding and that are producing different things, different products that are exciting. So Do you think think CRISPR gets involved in cannabis? Do you think those two fields merge here sooner rather than later? Oh yeah, absolutely. Like... CRISPR and other things like, oh, yeah, like, absolutely. Like, and I would do it like, no break, like for hemp, it's for no fiber brain. hemp. Oh, yeah, just silence all of those cannabinoid genes in fiber just hemp. Just send it as yeah. far as it can get. Exactly. Like, why do you need them there, right? Like, just silence those guys out and then you don't care because they're not going to produce any cannabinoids. You're totally legal, totally. right? Yeah. What's the biggest hindrance for doing that? Is it money to get that off the ground? Yeah, and you got to pay Beam or someone else that's already licensed the technology, right? (laughs) Yeah, but I also think that it's the labs that need to do it are labs that may be federally controlled. I mean, I know that there are some institutes in California that are working, like the Salk Institute in California is working uh, big time on, on certain cannabis aspects. I know that there are some universities in Canada that are doing some gmo type of thing. I don't know, Israel, right? Like Israel, they they, they should be. Are there any aspects of the plant that intrigue you or in the back of your mind you're wondering about? Oh, yeah, so many. I think that the Y chromosome is fascinating. And the monoecious individuals, I think that those are fascinating. And the Y chromosome in cannabis is very different from the Y chromosome in humans. So in humans, the Y chromosome is the smallest chromosome, Right. In humans, the Y chromosome basically have one gene, and that one gene is the one that tells the rest of the genome, hey, guys, turn on, you know, like, hey, we're going to produce hair, testosterone, right? So basically, as a female human, I have all of those genes, but I don't have that one gene that turns everything on, more or less. That's more or less how it works. In cannabis, the Y chromosome is the biggest one, and it's, it's huge, and it has a lot of repetitive content. And repetitive content, as the word says, is is repetitive. So it's hard to know where it starts and where it stops, right? Because it's a lot of blah, 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 blah. So putting together, assembling the Y chromosome, it's hard. And word on the street is that there is some Y chromosomes that have been assembled in Canada and another one in the Salk Institute in California. So that's a word on the street. Um, Let's see what happens. They're not still publicly available. So I think that that's fascinating. The monoecious individuals are fascinating, right? Because they apparently have two X chromosomes, but they still produce male flowers. Like, what are you turning on? Or where where is that gene, right? I, I think that that is, and that's what drew my attention at the beginning. But the cannabinoids, I think, are also super, the terpenes. Oh, the terpenes are 
because of terpenes, it seems that one gene can affect multiple traits. And then there's one trait that can be affected by multiple genes, right? So that's pleiotropy and epistasis. That's how it's called. So they're in play. And then, so I, I know that you know Jordan Sager. Yeah. He's a, he's a Jordan. Yeah. Dr. Yeah. Long, really. Mark Long is the man. That ma- yeah, but the they man. have... <laughs> Jordan like that on his shot. Well, I mean, so. like, I'm sorry, but like, Jordan learned under Mark, right? Like, I'm going to give respect to Mark. For, I mean, I, I have mad respect for Jordan too, right? <laughs> They're doing yeah. great things, but... <laughs> but they, they have this 2019 paper, I always... Because yeah. in my top five papers that they showed that all of these genes may be acting in a network, right? And all of these genes may be acting together to produce this very complex phenotypes. And I, I think that they may be right. Also, just shout out one of the most, the coolest things I've seen that's uh, been achieved by scientists in Canvas is Mark Long getting time on the supercomputer at Pacific National Labs to run a lot of that data through in order to pull those conclusions out of the data. So a little quick shout oh, out. Oh, really? Yeah, he got time on it. I was like, what? <laughs> well, that's pretty cool. I know, right? Just because it's federally funded, right? To do like cannabis enzyme work, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Dr. Danielle, when you got started in the cannabis space, what did you get right? And most importantly, what did you get wrong? I I don't know what did I get right, but I know that there were many things that I got wrong. So first, when I started in cannabis, we thought that THC and CBD were one gene, right? That it was a one locus to allele type of thing. So you had either CBD that you got from your mom or THC that you got from your dad and you expressed them both or only CBD or only THC. So we thought that that was a case. Now we know that there's a gazillion genes, that they're all in close proximity. So, and that happened in 2015. So while I was working in cannabis, we, we found that out. We know that there are many, many compounds in different ratios. So all of those things I... China had them wrong. Also, there's a paper that uh, we published in 2021, 2022 with Leafly. I love that paper. And I had my hesitancy between labs. I was like, yeah, labs are, you know, they don't tell the true story. You give them more money. They spike your THC. And then we analyzed the lab data and the labs were very consistent between each other and they're in completely different places. So one lab was in Washington, the other one was in Oregon, the other one was in Florida, Alaska, Michigan, right? And they were super consistent. So there are labs that are doing a really good job and that gave me a lot of faith and hope and in the cannabis industry that despite not being regulated, despite being illegal, like despite having the federal government maybe shutting out your business, these labs are doing a good job. And and I don't know, I was just like, I love these labs. I don't know who they are, I, but I love them. You could sum up your experience in a main takeaway or lesson learned to pass on to the next generation. What would it be? Why do you ask me this hard philosophical <laughs> question? We want to learn from you. Okay, so two things like you never know what you're going to be ending up doing in life. You never know. And what you're learning as an undergrad or in grad in grad school, whenever that is the time that you're going to learn that you're not going to. It's like, oh, no, yeah, I'll, I'll revise that in 10 years from now. Like, that's not going to happen. You learn that then and there or you did not learn it. So do it then. Make sure that you do it then. 
Love it. All right. Prediction time. Dr. Daniela, I gave you a magic wand. You can do an experiment or study with money not being an issue or ethics being involved at all. What would you do to help us expedite our learning and understanding of the cannabis plant? What would I do? Money or ethics are not, and I can't do anything. Okay, perfect. This is what I would do. I would have a bunch of plants that I would, I would give people a bunch of weed for them to try. I would know, or it would be a double-blinded study, right? So I wouldn't know, or the consumer wouldn't know exactly what they're taking. It doesn't matter what strain it is, but I would know, but we would know the chemotype, right? We would know how much THC, CBD, hopefully terpenes, et cetera. And then we would gather information from them about how they felt, what they felt, when they, and, and we would gather a bunch of other information. Are you, uh, did you exercise? Did you sleep? Did you eat? Are you depressed? Right? Like all of this information. And then we would pinpoint what compound does what. That's what I would do. And whether you ate it or whether you drank it or whether you smoked it or you vape it. And so we would have, I don't know, 10,000 participants. Like a true clinical trial. Like a clinical trial. Yeah. And not even... You know, like we would just gather questionnaires. Like from there, you could go a step further to actually withdraw blood and see basal cannabinoid levels or right or, but not even there. Like just the first step of asking the questions. What did you feel? What did it smell like? How did it make you feel? Right? Because if you go to Leafly's website and you Google, I don't know, Tangerine Dream, it'll tell you, oh, this one makes me active, blah, blah, blah. So you already have that preconceived right? You already know more or less. But if you have no strain name and you don't know what's there, then it's a blinded study, right? That's what I would do. Like it. Kellen? I agree with Dr. Daniela. I think that looking into the entourage effect or the endocannabinoid system in any fashion from like a well-funded NIH like study that's executed at like a John Hopkins or like a major institute that's used to running these kind of really large trials on how human physiology interacts with different substances, right? I think something like that is probably what's most needed in cannabis research right now, whether that's understanding the true nature of every endogenous cannabinoid that's floating around in your system right now and how deficiencies affect different illnesses or anything under the sun from a polypharmacy entourage effect perspective. What do you think, Brian? I'm fascinated by personalized medicine. I'm wondering if by understanding deeply about the plant and then being able to to crossbreed to have a specific uh, plant profile, then we can align with people's personal endocannabinoid system to maybe potentially help some of these therapeutic areas we've kind of leaned into. And I'm fascinated in understanding that and wondering if cannabis can be, you know, really close to helping unlock that. So how that happens and how we get there, I'll leave it up to the two of you, but that would be the the study that I would lean for. But yeah, I would also do leafy trichomes and trichomes in the stems and trichomes, you know, like, and then I, I really, really like it when people do stuff 
that are kind of like obvious against the stupid regulations, right? So my best example, a friend of mine gave me these cookies that are made out of hemp. So all of these plants were less than 0.3%. But the cookies have a lot of THC because they take it, they concentrate it, and then they make the cookie. But it's made out of hemp. So, right, I love that. I was like, ah, oh, you smart people. Yes. And this industry just full of entrepreneurs operating in straight gray area. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And laws that do not make sense. Agreed. By, by people who don't know why they made them. Right, Dr. Moore? <laughs> yeah. And one of my biggest one is the 0.3% THC. Like, they do not understand the biochemistry. They do not understand how these enzymes work, how these compounds are produced. The 0.3% THC is like one of the biggest ones. And then they're calling like CBD hemp. Like, no, you just want to call it hemp because you don't want to call it marijuana. But really, that is low THC marijuana. It has another compound. Yes. But, but it's not hemp for fiber. It's not hemp. Like, we're not making this T-shirt out of that plant. So Dr. Daniel, for all, for those who want to get in touch and they want to learn more, where can they find you? Where can they find me? You can find me in social media, in all of the, I mean, I don't use TikTok or Reddit. I don't know how to use Reddit either. And I am pretty bad on the other ones, but you can find me there um, in Twitter and LinkedIn and Instagram. You can find me there. I'm Kana Wakana. So Bakana means cool. So it's basically kind of cool, but in Spanish, right? So Kanabacana, at Kanabacana in Instagram and in Twitter and in LinkedIn. I'm Daniela Vergara. Awesome. We'll link it up in the show notes. Thanks for taking the time. This was fun. Yeah. Thank you. Guys, if you've enjoyed this podcast over the last few years, can you please take three minutes or less and leave us a quick review on Apple or Spotify? All reviews make a massive difference for us and help other people like you find this podcast. From the bottom of our hearts, thank you. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Season one of Dope History is now available at dopehistory.com. Dope History weaves you through the lives of those who have been touched by cannabis or have had an influence on the events that shaped our laws or relationships with this plant. You'll hear tales from Frenchie Cannoli, Keith Strop, Eddie Lepp, Tom Alexander, Ed Rosenthal, Wolf Seagull, Jorge Cervantes, and Tommy Chong. Available now at dopehistory.com.